0: Thank you so very much. We are asking the Lord for good things in these days, and uh, he is our great God, and we glorify him. Thank you for that singing. We were asked to consider reprising a series that we did uh, two years ago uh, related to the church, uh, with so many new folks among us and with those of you who are new to us, we want to make sure that you know from our hearts, that is the heart of the leadership of our church, our elders, who have asked me to reprise this series, what is the church? And the series that we started two years ago were five particular main principles in every sermon of a five-week series that would give us 25 principles about the church. And this is what we want to drum into our minds repeatedly, mainly because there are so many local churches that are so wide and varied in their approach Uh, And when I say approach, I mean how to do church, how to understand what the local church is very practically. And because of that, I've been asked by our elders to bring those series of messages again to you over five Sundays, beginning with this last Sunday of the year, and then through the month of January, and just finishing right before our annual meeting as a congregation so that we could re-grip on the truths about the local church. I'm going to change the title. The title in that series two years ago uh, was "The What is the Church and Why Does It Matter? But I want to change the title, not necessarily the content, uh, because I've often heard people not really asking inquisitively about what is the church and why does it matter. Maybe there are those who will listen to this series of messages with more of a skeptical gaze. And so I want to retitle this series, Church, colon, Why Bother? Why bother? It seems to me that there are far more people, especially outside the church who would ask the question, what is the church and why does it matter? But possibly even a wider audience who are actually saying not something like that, but asking the question, why bother with the church? The church seems to be, to me, irrelevant, uncompelling. Why should I bother with going to church at all? You've got the talking head up there who drones on and on. You have people that look in the pew very disinterested. You have people who don't seem to see the relevance of the church, the nature of the church, the activity of the church, the the motivation for being in church, and so forth. And honestly, honestly, There are churches in our day that seem to check off the boxes of what I've just mentioned. And I think so many people see the irrelevancy of the church because they don't either know what the Bible teaches when it talks about the church, or they don't understand the theology of the church so as to understand, therefore, the practicality of the church, And there are loads of churches, many churches, if not most churches, that see the church as irrelevant because when they see the practicality of the church, they see it disengaged from the theology of the church. What I have said is that we need to have certainly an orthodoxy about our doctrine in the church, that the... Church has a doctrine that is orthodox. And then, once we find out what the church is in terms of its orthodoxy, then we see how relevant the church is by its its orthopraxy. That is, the practical relationship of the church as it does its ministry in direct relationship to the theology of the church. In other words, the two go together and cannot be separated. And so what I'm going to do when I give you these 25 principles of church life and ministry is to interweave and to interlock the theology of the church with its attendant practicality. But I want to do it in a way that might be fun and invigorating for us all, because if you're like me, you're gonna hear this and you're gonna say, okay, great, he's doing a series on the church. I've heard this all before. Well, maybe I can say it in a fresh way, especially to those of you who are here and are new to this church. I can say it in a fresh way by giving you, number one, the principle itself. What is the church and why bother? This is why you should bother with the church. Give you the principle first, and then give you a passage or two, especially a main passage that I want you to look to, even though they may be on the screen as well. I still would like you to take your Bibles and turn to those passages because I'm going to say things that are obviously not up on the screen. And then thirdly, I want to give you a key term that you can remember about these particular points. It's uh, not Halloween. All right, so I want to give you the first point of these 25, and we'll go over five of them today, and then five the next time, five the time after that, and so on, until we are finished with this series, Church, Why Bother? Because I hope that after we're finished, you will say it's not only not a bother, but it is essential. The church is essential, and I'll share with you why. So let's talk about the first one, all right? The first key concept or key principle that I want us to know is this. The church exists, and this has to be number one, number one over all the others in priority order, number one, the church exists to glorify God. The church exists to glorify God. In other words, if I were to tell you that you should bother with the church, you should know the church, you should find out what the church is about, you should find the church compelling. It is because it is in and through the local church that God is most glorified. Now, that should really pique our attention because if you and I want to find out how to most glorify God, then you and I should find out about the local church and its ministry because it is there where God is most glorified In the entire universe, you say, even more than angels, Uh, even more than those who are under the earth, those who are now even begrudgingly having to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, demons, authorities, powers, principalities. I mean, they know the truth. Well, there was even an occasion in James 2 where it says, even the demons believe and shudder. So even even the demons accord honor to God, even though begrudgingly they're forced to do it. Even greater than that, yes. And I'll and I'll show you where a key passage is that teaches this very thing. Look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. We're going to go through these passages, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, although I'll make some parenthetical comments about them, because you and I are to understand why we are to bother with the church. In fact, it's not even a bother at all once you see these passages come to life. Ephesians chapter 3, of course, the Apostle Paul is talking Major league about the church in the book of Ephesians, all right? And so in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to start, for instance, let's go maybe from Ephesians chapter 3, oh, maybe around verse 14, okay? Here's a prayer of Paul's, and here's what he says for this reason and of course that reason has been articulated to us in the first 3 chapters and particularly what he's just said at the end of the section that that follows with these grand themes about the church in the latter part of This section of chapter 3. And so he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So this is a prayer. This is a prayer wish of Paul. This is what he's praying. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that's a grand beginning to that prayer. And did you notice in verse 16 that according this prayer wish of Paul is to the riches of his glory? That's a key word. That's a key word. In fact, the key word that you see there is the word doxology. And with all 25 of these points, I'm going to give you an ology word or an ITY word. Okay, ology is the study of, okay? And the I-T-Y words will be very, very uh, obvious to you as we go through this. And I've worked hard on giving you a key concept like the word doxology from Ephesians chapter 3 because the number one reason why you should bother with the church of Jesus Christ is because God is glorified through his church, And I'm going to show you how much he's glorified. Let's read on. Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, you the church, you the Ephesians church, and of course, all local churches that are faithful to the Lord Jesus, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? Well... It certainly includes love, but it also is talking about the glorious revelation of the church, the breadth of the church, the length of the church, the height of the church, the depth of the church, and the God who is over that, his character, his will, his purposes. This is to know it in its great height and in its great length and in its great breadth and in its great depth. And for you to know the love of Christ, the very character of Christ, who is love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a great prayer. And then this, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And then verse 21. To him be glory where? In the church. I mean, if you want to talk about the breadth and length and height and depth of the person of God, the power of God, the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ that even surpasses knowledge, anything we could think with the greatest intellect that you could possibly aspire, that you be filled with the fullness of God, and that you could do more abundantly than all that could be asked or thought according to the power at work within us, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, to him obviously obviously is the glory to be in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The glory of God is manifested in two major places. It's manifested in this peculiar glory that is the church of Jesus Christ, and it is taught to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Our beloved brother, John Piper, has written a book not too long ago called A Peculiar Glory. And that's a great read. You ought to to get that book and read it. Because what he says is a peculiar glory is this, that God manifests his massive, amazing glory through the revelation of the word of God. And because the word of God is so unique, because the word of God is so incredibly unique, there's nothing like it on the planet, then this is why Piper calls it a peculiar Glory. It's a special glory. We don't know anything about the church unless we know what the Word of God says about the church. And what the Word of God says about the church is that it is where God's glory is being manifested in our world today. You say, in our little church? I mean, in and through us? I mean, not the building not the faulty lights, not, not anything like that. It's in us. It's in our persons. It's what God is doing in the grand reclamation project. And what is the grand reclamation project? He's transforming us little by little, greater by greater means, so that you and I one day ourselves as persons both individually and then collectively to be looking just like Jesus Christ. What a glory. What a glory. In fact, the reason I've chosen that particular key word, doxology, doxology, you know, it's not just the song, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below. It's it's the idea of glory, in fact, the word doxa is the Greek word for glory. And did you realize that this idea of glory, if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, is coming from a Hebrew word, "kavod," "kavod," And that word itself means weight, weight. And the idea of glory being connected with the concept of weight is this that you and I see the glory of God in the person of God with such weightiness that there is something completely different about him in relation to us. He is the most weighty person in the universe. Maybe I could explain it like this. A couple of years ago in one of the presidential elections, there was someone who was questioning a particular presidential candidate who, in fact, did become president. And what they kept saying about this person is that they did not have enough gravitas. Gravitas. You know what gravity means? It's the idea of being weighted and coming down. The idea of gravitas, the idea of this weightedness is that God himself, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit are so heavy, so weighted with power and love, as we've read here in Ephesians chapter 3, that they are the greatest the greatest persons of the universe in the one God, he is so weighty, he is so reverent, he is so honorable, he is so glorious, and yet he chooses through the revelation of his word, a peculiar glory, to take his word and describe something about you and about me, and that's this. Even though you and I think we're a ragtag bunch, and we are, that God is doing something in us. God is transforming us. God is taking that peculiar glory of his word and creating another kind of peculiar glory, and that is how a ragtag bunch like us could actually represent the great weight of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You know, when people say, well, boy, don't you want to be a part of... uh, X church or Y church or Z church. And they've got thousands coming. You know what is so appealing to me? Is watching God manifest his glory in a small, little, local church so that when it becomes so glorious, we all know who did it. We all know who was behind it. It's not because of the the fancy and... uh, Ebullient nature of the preacher. It's not. It's not the idea of the the great wealth in a local congregation. Uh, it's not about all the tremendous gifts and abilities of everybody who are all pulling together. Oh, it might be elements of those things, but the greatest reason why God is manifesting His glory in the local church, including even a local church like ours, is because everybody will need to see one day that it was not. Our own ingenuity that brought it about. It was God's manifest glory. This is, this is what God is doing. In fact, look over back at chapter 1 of Ephesians. This is what God is doing in His church. Through the church, my friends, God is, is doing something that is marvelous. Look at, look at chapter 1, for instance, beginning in verse 19. There's a glorious inheritance according to verse 18, which is going to be ours as the saints of Jesus Christ. And in verse 19 it says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And notice how this glory will extend with the very power of the universal Christ glory far above all rule, verse 21, and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see in verse 21 where it says all rule, authority, power and dominion, that's very likely a reference to to the various hierarchy of angelic beings. In other words, they have have names and titles and responsibilities. And what Jesus Christ does by rising from the dead is to prove the weightiness of his person, the glory of his accomplishments. And it says there, in the church... In the church. This is what God is doing in the church. I can't stress this enough. You say, well, these powers, these these authorities, these dominions. Did you realize that in Ephesians chapter 3, it's called the mystery of Christ? And what is that mystery? That Jew and Gentile are brought together. That all of these disparate groups of people are brought together. We might say in our own little church here that it's uh, everybody who's brought together who would probably never be together unless it weren't for God. Our different skin colors, our different socioeconomic backgrounds, our different heights and weights, our different looks and desires, our different ideas and purposes. And yet God is bringing us together to do something that can only be explained by him, by his power, by his work. This is is amazing. Look at chapter three, verse nine, or even back up to verse eight. To me, though I'm very... Least of all the saints, this grace was given, this grace from God, this power from God, the working of his power according to verse 7, the unsearchable opportunity to preach Christ. Notice what he says there, this grace, verse 8, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Notice this, verse 10, so that through the church, through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I mean, you look at the book of Ephesians, and you keep seeing all of these references to, to, to authorities and powers and principalities. Who are they? Angels. And maybe even in some of these contexts, he's including the bad angels, the demons. And what's he saying? What's, what's the implication? The implication is this, that God is so transforming us as individuals and then as a corporate body so that there could be a display, a display one day when the church is this wonderful, pure virgin of a church who's been cleaned up and sprinkled on with this word of God so that you and I have such weight to ourselves because we've been transformed transformed into the very image of Christ so that we are the very essences. We are the display table so this weightiness of the glory of God is shown to all of the demons that nothing they could do worked at all. I mean, what, a, what an incredible thought. What, a, what an incredible idea that the reason for the church... Talk about bothering this is this is the very reason for the church's existence the glory of god and we're not done look at look at number 2 number 2 in our list it's not just the glory of god it's also that the church exists to be a repository of divine truth remember i told you that there was some peculiar glory this glory of the scripture manifesting the glory of God? Well, here it is. The church exists to be a repository of divine truth. Look at 1 Timothy chapter three. All of these passages that we're gonna go over are Pauline passages that talk about the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter three, verse 15, I don't hear Bible pages moving. 1 Timothy chapter three. Oh, you say I'm scrolling. Okay, I got you, I got you. 1 Timothy chapter three. These are so important. I want these to be embedded through your eyeballs onto your consciousness. First Timothy chapter three. This is, this is an amazing thing. Verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So clearly in the context, then we're talking about the church because it's the household of God. And then Paul Does a a sort of uh, backing up, as it were, and and he's going to describe, he's going to define what the household of God is. So here it is. I, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's the church, which is the church of the living God, and then he describes it. Here's the definition, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Oh, man, I love that. I love that. The church, if it exists at all, exists for the grand weightiness of our God, the glory of our God. That's our doxology. That's why we exist as as a church, to glorify God and to be a display even to the demons in the latter days. And the church is the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. You say, what do you mean? This is the key concept of our theology. It's not just our doxology, but our theology. That's why doctrine is so incredibly important. That's why you sit here with me and we spend 45, 50 minutes, 55 minutes talking about doctrine. Because it's that important. Woe is the church who says, I'm sorry, I have to apologize about going through the Bible so that we can talk about doctrine. Doctrine. Woe is such a church. We exist in and through doctrine. You say, I don't like that word. I don't like it. And theology, don't like that one either. Did you know that the word doctrine in the Bible is simply in our New Testaments, another word for teaching? That's all it is. Teaching. Didasco, it's teaching, it's doctrine. Doctrine is life. And life is doctrine. Every time we teach, we're not just trying to fill your heads with doctrine alone. We want to fill your heads with doctrine so that you can have truth with legs on it. So that you can walk. And you can talk. And you can have this theology that lives. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the church. When someone says church, why bother? I say It's only showing you how to live. And how many people can come to the church, like Pastor Chris mentioned at the beginning, who are confused, helpless, hopeless, and they come and they say, I've tried everything else. Maybe you can help me. And, of course, when they come, we say, most certainly we can help you. Not because we believe we have the corner on truth, but we know this the Word of God is the very pillar and support or buttress of such truth. Think about that building. Think about this building. Think about the fact that there are pillars that are holding up our roof. And should those pillars be destroyed, what happens to the roof? The roof becomes the floor the buttress of the truth, the support. Do you know that if we were to rip up this worship center and if we were to rip up that floor and if we were to see that there were pylons, as it were, reinforcement bar, they they call it in the construction world rebar. There's rebar that's holding the floor in place which as a floor is holding the pillars in place, which as pillars are holding the roof in place so that we can have a physical location in which we are hearing the word of God being taught. It's a great analogy. It's a tremendous analogy. That's what the word of God is. That's what this Bible is. That's what we exist for, to know the truth. Now someone's gonna come along and says, look, I don't wanna know the truth, I just wanna know Jesus. Well, which Jesus are we talking about? And did not Jesus himself say in John chapter 17, verse 3, to know God and to know Jesus Christ is the truth? You see, you can't talk about truth unless you're talking about Christ. And you can't talk about Christ unless you're talking about the truth. See, that's why we have to have doxology, and that's why we also have to have theology. Doctrine is the most important element in anybody's spiritual life. You gotta know truth. That's why we preach and teach. That's why we have classes. That's why we have study groups. That's why we have small groups. That's, that's why in every place we go, even down to the smallest kiddie ministry of our church, We're trying to tell them about who Jesus Christ is. We're trying to inform them from the word of God, which is itself biblical doctrine, which so needs its way into our souls that it becomes our very life response in an hour of trial. It's like what is said about John Bunyan by Spurgeon himself. John Bunyan, you remember the author of Pilgrim's Progress? He apparently knew so much doctrine, so much Bible that he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress which is nothing more than an allegory of living the Christian life. And every turn, everything he said. I got my wife recently the Pilgrim's Progress in a particular version that both of us really, really like. Because at the bottom of the page almost all of the sentences have footnotes to biblical passages. And helpful understandings, because this book was written in the 1600s, helpful understandings and definitions of some of the terms that he's using, which also find their way from Scripture. And that being the case, Charles Spurgeon said he read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress at least once a year for every year of his Christian life, starting when he was just a wee lad, and... He said, I suppose if you were to cut John Bunyan, he would bleed bibline. Isn't that great? You, you, you can't even read an allegory by one of the Puritans like John Bunyan unless Scripture is oozing out of the ears. This is, this is what the church is all about. Why bother? Why bother the church? Oh, only if you want to know God only if you want to know Jesus Christ, only if you want to know the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Number three, number three, the church is a place for loving fellowship and mutual edification. Church is a place for loving fellowship and mutual edification. Now somebody's gonna say, all right, now you're getting somewhere. Now you're talking. Give me the practical. You know, give me the living out stuff. Well, you can't have that without the doctrine first that's the foundation, that's the buttress, that's the pillar. And what does doctrine do? It brings us together. It molds and shapes us together. And if you're still in Ephesians chapter three, here's what it says. Ephesians chapter three, look at verse 16 to 19. I read it before, that according to to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, look at all the yours and the yous. This is corporate. This is corporate. This is not just to you as an individual. This is to you. If you were an Ephesians believer, if you were living in Ephesus at the time, it wouldn't be just for you and your own personal quiet time. This would be read to the congregation, and the congregation would read it. And by the way, even if you were having your personal quiet time, you likely in that first century wouldn't have had a copy of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, right? And since you wouldn't have had a copy, you couldn't have had your own personal quiet time with a copy of your own copy of the Scriptures. And if you were to come to listen to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you'd be coming to church. Is that not an encouragement to come to church? Is that not an encouragement to come regularly to church? Is that not an encouragement to come regularly to church so as to have a heart to know what you believe? And wouldn't you want to come to church regularly, consistently, to not only know what you believe, but to also know how to practically carry it out? Of course, it's all here. This is a prayer of Paul's. He grants that you, Ephesian believers, be strengthened with power and that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would be in your inner being. How so? So that Christ may settle down. That's what that word dwell means. Settle down deeper and more deeply in your hearts through faith and that you, Ephesians believer, would be rooted and grounded in love and that you whole church in Ephesus may have the strength to comprehend all of these things including the power of God and the love of God and that you would be having loving fellowship as you do it. You notice the words for love there? Being rooted and grounded in love. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Anybody think as an individual Christian, they've got the corner on love? Of course not. We need to understand love in the context of our fellowship together. I can't make it on my own. I I can't be one of those Lone Ranger Christians who assumes that he can live his Christian life, her Christian life on their own without anybody around and without any help from anyone. The Bible calls that pride that's pride. For someone who thinks, well, I just I'll just go worship God in nature. I'll just go to the to the mountains and and there I I'm worshiping God. I'll just go to the beach and there I see this this grand creation of God and I'm all alone and I'm just by myself. I don't need other Christians. I don't need the church. The church is a bother to me. If someone believes and practices such things, and notice I said practice. It's not wrong to go to a mountain and It's not wrong to go to a beach and open up your Bible and and have a, a massively encouraging time reading on your own. Not at all. But the practice of individual Christians must be that we are gathering together here for an explanation, an explication of the Word of God about what love means, about what power means, and how to apply that to our lives. And as soon as the service is over, you and I should be talking to others about the implications of such things. We ought to be going over to each other's homes. We ought to be going to small groups and classes. And we ought to be continuing to think about the implications of power and love, our loving fellowship together. By the way, we ought to do that because we're going to be doing it in eternity anyway, aren't we? And if we're going to be doing it in eternity anyway, then why not get a head start? Why not do it now? You say, well, I just don't like people. I just I just don't like people. In fact, I heard someone once say, even as a minister of the gospel, I love to preach. I love to preach. It's just the people I can't stand. <laughs> what? Here's the idea. The idea is the loving fellowship where we together are being shown the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the power of God and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you and I as individual Christians coming together as a corporate body may be filled with all the fullness of God. Anybody up for being filled with all the fullness of God? What's the the key idea here? Mutuality. It's our mutual relationship with one another. I was, I was uh, down this week, had absolutely no voice four days ago, little bit of a voice three days ago, half a voice two days ago, and I was texting with Chris and the elders, and are you going to make it? Uh, should, we, should we spell you this morning? And here was my one thought. You're going to have to drag me out of this pulpit why? Because of the mutuality, not only in terms of what you receive on a Sunday morning from me, but what, from what I receive from you. The mutual encouragement. Do you know it was so encouraging to receive that gift from you on our Christmas Eve service? I know Chris would say the same thing. Just your love, your commitment, the fact that you're here, the fact that you love hearing the word of God preached. That's like saying, sick him to a mad dog. I'm not going to miss that. You're going to have to pry me away with my fingernails scratching down the wall to get me not to preach. Why? Because there's a mutual relationship with us, and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. This is the this is our mutuality together. And, and it's not just loving fellowship, it's also mutual edification. Look at Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. Look at verse sixteen. This is this is so grand and so glorious. By the way, speaking about doctrine, maybe we should back up to the verse eleven. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is what Jesus Christ has done. He's given us skilled teachers. He's given given us gifted men for the body. And it says in verse 12, for building up the body of Christ. Church, why bother? Oh, it's only for the building up of the body of Christ. That's all. That's all that it is. Verse 13, And, and when will that body be built up? Incrementally, over time, verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And notice he, he now creates an analogy of a, of a small child who is growing and ever maturing into an adult man. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Wow. Wow. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. See the analogy? Tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, my dear wife has borne our family eight children and every single one of them, and you've, you've had the same experience with those children, they become toddlers. And then even when they're walking around, they pick something up from a dirty floor and where do the, where's the first place they put it? It's the, it's the absolute worst place to put it. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your dad's hand. Don't put it in your mouth. That's what children do. That's what they do. I'm going to take this dirty, smelly toy that's got fungi all over it, and I think I'm going to put it in my mouth. It'll taste good. In fact, I'll even lick it. We, 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 we can't do that. We can't be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and also in deceitful schemes of the enemy. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up, there's that analogy, we're maturing into manhood in every way into him who is the, Christ, uh, who is the head into Christ, and then verse 16. Here's the... Mutual edification, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, so that it manifests itself as a beautiful edifice. That's where the word edified comes from, right? This is just what we're all about, mutual edification, loving fellowship. We can't do this unless there's mutuality among us. Can't do it. That's why you gotta be here. That's why you need to be faithful. And and there's a fourth, fourth principle. The church exists as a training center, an equipping center. And that's right here in Ephesians chapter four. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip. And it's not my own equipping as a preacher, but it's actually my preaching that equips you. That's why we have all the teaching ministries of the church, to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's, that's what the church is all about. Church, why bother? What's the church and why does it matter? Well, it only matters for your upbuilding, for mutual upbuilding, gaining strength, being powerful. I loved what it says about this preacher in the book of Acts where he was one of these great preachers, and it says he was powerful in doctrine, powerful in doctrine. He knew the word, and even there, he had to be taught And retaught so that he could bring in sort of new covenant concepts into his old covenant ideas. And and, and when he when he grasped it, when he got it, he he was known as a powerful preacher in mighty doctrine. That's what we're talking about. It's what we're talking about. And how do you do that? You got to teach, you got to equip, you gotta build up. Here's the key word practicality. Practicality. It's not just teaching for teaching's sake. It's not just saying to someone, well, there you have it, there you have it, that's all you need, now go and do what you do. No, it's actually sitting down and talking about the implications of such a thing. This is where discipleship comes in. This is where counseling comes in. This is where we do the dispensing of the Word of God, we preach it uh, to the To the planoply of all the persons, and we go individually to those who say, I've got a question about that. Help me with this. I'm struggling with this. Disciple me in this way. And we say, Man, this is what we live for. I know Chris and I would both say, This is what we live for. This is what we do. And there are, there are in the history of the church, these pastor teachers who give their lives for your sake, both in terms of the ministry of preaching and also the house-to-house ministry of applying it to people's lives. And that's why we say there's practicality to this. Number five and finally, the church exists to be a light in this dark world. Look at Philippians chapter two. We'll close with this. This is a, this is a, This is a dark world, my friends. This is a very dark world. And because it's a dark world, we are supposed to be something. Not just do something, but be something. And what are we to be? Look at verse 14 of Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, just two sins that we're all guilty of, that you may be blameless. Here, here's our presentation to the world, this dark world, that you may be blameless, that's a word, innocent, that's another word, children of God without blemish, that's another, in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice it tells us what we are among whom you shine as lights in the world and also some of the things that we have to do so that we can shine as lights in the world. And two of them he lists here: do all things without grumbling or disputing. What would the church be like? What would every local church be like if there was not one ounce of grumbling or disputing? What power? What incredible power! this This would be this would be a kind of church that. Christian people would want to flock to because they've found the answer, the potion for not grumbling and disputing. You want to talk about a, a, a kind of, of sedative, a, a medicine, a, a kind of a pill, a, a, a kind of treatment to get rid of all disputing, to get rid of all grumbling? I want to go to that church. I want to go to that church, wherever it is. Give me the address for my GPS. I'm going there. And you say, "What are you talking about?" Missiology. That's the key concept. Missiology. It's our mission. This is our mission. Our mission is to appear as lights in a dark place. This is our mission. There's no greater cause. There's there's no greater calling. You say, yeah, well, aren't you the one with the calling? You're the one who's the preacher, but we're equipping you to do the work of the ministry so that you can appear as lights in the world. And if Chris and I are standing in the back cheering you on as your lights are ever glowing, praise God, praise God, we don't have to be the upfront people. One of the greatest things is after the preaching, watching people grow and change and be transformed. And there's nothing we're doing. You're doing it. You're taking up the mantle. You're taking up the cause. And you are in your home, in your school, in your workplace. You are beginning to shine as a light in the world. And you are saying just by who you are and what you say that Christianity is real. That the church is relevant. You say church why bother? You show it by your life and you'll show people why the church matters. Why people bother with church. Amen and amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for these key principles and these key passages and these key concepts which show us who we are to be. And Lord, these are just five of them from your word. May you fire us up for godly living through biblical content with 20 more. And we ask that you'd make this coming January different than all the Januaries from before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.